If you want to be opening your Bibles to Leviticus 8, you can. Uh, that will be where we'll be in just a little bit. And I want to talk about something today that maybe this is very normal. Maybe the subject and this idea is something that you know a lot about. But I, I want to talk about it maybe in a way that is a little different. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I want to talk about how we're supposed to live as Christians today. First, I just want to say that I, I really am uh, sad that Richard is not able to be here. I know that he always looks forward to, to being here with us, but especially when he's down to lead singing, I know he puts a lot of time into that, and I appreciate that. And uh, so I'm sure that he had his songs picked out, and he would probably practiced them half a dozen times each and everything like that. And so I hate that he's not feeling well. But I'm really thankful that Josh uh, not only was able to, but was willing to step up and, and just kind of step in. I, I think that's one of the cool things that we kind of have here is that most of us are, are able to do that or are willing to do that, even if we don't feel super capable of doing it uh, with, with a lot of different things. That, that's how I feel, at least. If, if I don't feel very capable, I'll at least do it if you'll allow me to. So, um, which maybe that's why I'm up here right now. So um, anyway, so I want to talk about how we're supposed to live as Christians or at least how we usually think of the way of life of a Christian. We, we talk about certain things that we're supposed to do and certain things we're not supposed to do. And I think we understand there's a certain code, if you will, that, that we are to follow as Christians. There's a way of life. And I don't mean that in a legalistic way. It's just the truth of it. There's things we see in the New Testament that Christians are not supposed to do. And there's some things that we see that Christians are supposed to be doing. At this church, we talk a lot about how we're supposed to treat each other, uh, loving each other, serving one another, seeking opportunities to teach the lost, and, and so on. And, and those are really good things for us to talk about. And I think that those are typically challenging things, but they're also very positive things, usually. It's good to reinforce the Christian lifestyle of holiness and godliness, though. And so if this is a reminder for you, then that's good, and I hope that this will help you and your resolve to live like God wants you to live. But if this is convicting to you on some level, then I hope you understand that that's also not a terrible thing that you feel convicted. It would be worse if you heard things that were against how you lived and you weren't convicted. The appropriate response of being convicted of things of our sin or ways of life that we, uh, that we need to put away is that we repent of those things. And so if that's you, then, then maybe that's something that you should do later on today or, or do at the end of the lesson or do later on tonight when you're just collecting your thoughts at the end of the day. I want to talk about Christian morality and holiness, and I want to take a look at a few things involving the priests specifically. Then I want to go to the New Testament. I want to take a look at some things that Peter and others say about our lives as Christians. Our lives as part of this royal priesthood under Christ. And I think there's a, there's a greater calling that we should see. It's not just that we live a certain way and we, we just try to find the way that, that Christ lived and match up our life with him just because that's what we're supposed to do. But there's a, there's a higher calling and, a, and more depth to why we should live that way. So if you find it difficult to restrain yourself from certain things that, that you know are just not right and you also know that you do have this avenue of prayer and forgiveness uh, through Christ so that... You, you know you have that, but you still know that, you know, I shouldn't be living this way. Well, maybe this will help you to put those things away a little bit more. And if not, then if you're just very good about saying, this is wrong, I will not do that ever. This is right, I will always do that. Well, then you, you, you got it. Uh, and you're doing good. 
But I want to also bring out some things that maybe would even help you to be more appreciative and feel like a um, there is per- more purpose behind how you live than just you being right with God, which, by the way, that, that is what we all seek to do. But why? Why do we do that? So when we, t- when we talk about Christian morality, I think that we, we might understand this, but just to define it in a way, or these are a couple of definitions I found. I just kind of put them together a little bit in my own words. That there's a set of ethics or morals that we usually agree on, or at least we try to agree on. It's an awareness that every person bears the dignity of being made in the image of God and that we choose ways that are in harmony with God's plan. So, for example, we look to Jesus for a set of moral standards based on his teaching and his life. We look to the whole Bible for that, but, but as Christians, we look to Jesus. and he, He's the person we're going to look to see what did he teach, what did he talk about, how did he live. And that informs our morals, our ethics, our way of life. I actually want to start in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. I'm only going to read a couple of verses from there just to set the stage for the rest of the lesson. So just listen up to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 3, or 3a. I'm not going to read the full verse 3. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness. So he's urging these brothers in light of of Jesus returning of life, uh, in light of the issues they're having uh, in, in in their community, although this is a very strong church. There are still problems in the community. They, they, they need to reach the lost still. But more than anything, they need to be who they're going to be in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. And he says, I ask and urge you that just as you received how to walk and how to please God, and, and you're doing that, he says, but you keep on doing that more and more. So keep living the life that you know you ought to live in Christ. And But he says in verse 3, this is the will of God, your holiness, your sanctification. You know, the, the Old Testament idea of that, is pretty specific to not it's not only towards priests but it is pretty specific for priesthood sanctification holiness another word for that would be consecration so i want to go to leviticus chapter 8 and i appreciate kelly reading verses 1 through 9 so i don't have to read that but i will just refer to a few things from there and then we're going to look at leviticus 8 and 9 and 10 or Leviticus 8 and 10, excuse me. And then we're going to fast forward a little bit, and we're going to take a look at another specific example of priesthood. But then I want to kind of broaden our idea of what the priesthood was all about. And then we'll go to the New Testament. So just to look at a few things from Leviticus 8, from what Kelly already, already read. If you notice, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and he says, I want you to take Aaron, who is his brother. I want you to take Aaron and his sons, and I want you to get out all this stuff ready. Because it's time for the priest to be consecrated. Now we could go back to Exodus and we could look at some of the things that have already been said as if they've happened. Like after uh, Moses comes down from Sinai, there's going to be this need for sacrifices. And and they're setting up the the religion and and the law and everything. And so it, it already talks about this. I believe it's in Exodus. Well, don't quote me on this. I believe it's in Exodus 33. Well, let me just go over and double check that real quick because I always feel bad when I try to make a, uh, 
try to make a point or I try to think, oh, I think this is where it is and I'm totally wrong. It turns out I'm wrong in this one. So let's see, 39, sorry. So Exodus 38, 39 is kind of the area that has already talked about this, but here comes the, the details, right? And so what he actually says is that you're going to need these garments, you're going to need anointing oil, you're going to need the, the offerings uh, and the things are needed for that, a bull, a couple rams, you're going to need some unleavened bread. But then if you notice, he says in, in verse 6, Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Why did he wash them? What was the purpose of this washing? There, there's, a, there's a cleansing idea here. So not only is he going to put these kind of weird looking things on or fancy clothing on, you're going to have these garments, you're going to have this turban, you're going to have like a metal plate here. I mean, not metal, you're going to have a golden plate here and all this other stuff. Not only is that going to happen, and by the way, this is a pretty bloody scene if you go throughout the rest of the chapter. There's a lot of blood be bling, being uh, sprinkled everywhere, and there's a lot of blood being poured and all these other things. And there's, there's uh, parts of the animal that's burned, and some of it's able to be eaten, and some of it's not. Some of it's taken outside the camp. Some of it's left to here. There's a whole lot going on here, but, but it all starts with them being washed with water. Well, I don't think that it's... Uh, just happenstance that one of the things that we see in the New Testament is that it kind of all starts with a washing. And I don't mean the washing that the Jews would typically do where it's like, you got to wash your hands and you got to wash this and everything. If you actually think about it, um, in order for the apostles to be ready to go out and do what Jesus wanted, to, wanted them to do, what was one of the first things he did? He washed them. He washed their feet, right? And then there's Peter saying, don't just wash my feet. I mean, if this is what it's going to take for me to be part of you, to be part of this work, for us to have this, this relationship, then, then wash all of me. Wash my head, wash everything, right? So it all starts here with him being washed with water. Then he puts a coat on him. He ties his sash around his waist. He clothes him. Well, what is it that, that, it, we're, that we're told that we put on in the New Testament? It says we put on Christ. So we're washed with this rejuvenating water where we put on the Holy Spirit, where we are, have our sins forgiven us, where we are cleansed, and then we are clothed with Christ. We put him on. And I don't think that's just a happenstance either. That, that's the, the wording that is used in the New Testament. So it says that they must be consecrated here in Leviticus 8. They have to be sanctified, and that's what they need. Well, why do they need that? Well, I think that there's two main reasons. The first is that they need this for their own cleansing. Because if you notice what happens is that there is a, a, specific, a specific sacrifice that must be made on behalf of the priest. The priests have sins too. They need this offering to be given for their sake. And they have to go through this process of being washed, being clothed and everything. But in order for them to ever do what God wants them to do, they have to be consecrated. They have to be cleansed. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I think it's exactly how we should view ourselves. They need to be distinguished among the people. But also the people are to distinguish them to, in, in, in the sight of God, which is kind of an interesting way of looking at it. So not only should, does God want to look at them and have them set apart, but he wants the people to be able to look at them and have them set apart in their own minds. Because if you notice this, this is not just in, in private necessarily. It says in verse 3, the assemble, uh, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now what happens within the tent of meeting is private. 
But why do you think the whole congregation was there right outside the door? So that they can be there to witness what happens, or at least witness kind of the aftermath of what happens. To be able to see these men right here, these men are set apart for a specific role, a specific work. And these priests would be useful. They, they are needed by the people. Let's go down to Leviticus 8 to verse 33. He says, You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. This was for their own good, so that they are toned for and so that he said that they do not die. So this isn't just, oh, this is for the sake of the people, these sacrifices. No, these sacrifices that happen in Leviticus 8 is on behalf of the priests themselves. It's to prepare them and ready them for the work, for this office of, of being a priest. And there's a lot that happens in, this, in Leviticus 8. And then you go to Leviticus 9, and it's kind of the same thing. There's a ton that happens here. This tells us that it's not only so that they are qualified to be priests, like a ceremony that just needs to be checked off, you know, where they just put a robe on and it's like, all right, there we go. That's all it is. But it's because of their own sin. Like they had to be atoned for. And this is so that they do not die. They cannot be doing anything about the people's sin when they still have sin themselves. But this isn't only unique to them. I want to go back actually to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. And I want us to notice something that maybe, maybe you've noticed in your own study that I had just not picked out before. In Exodus 19, we're going to read verses 2 through 6. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God, God tells Moses, this is what I want you to tell the people. Tell them that they need to do everything that I say. Tell them that... Uh, all this stuff, like you've seen what I can do. You've seen what I've done for you, what I did to the Egyptians, how I saved you, you know, bore you up on eagles' wings, that, that idea of salvation. And I brought you to myself. Like I, I brought you to me. I took you away from bondage, took you away from, from being under the, under the hand of Pharaoh, and I brought you to myself, God says. Now, if you will obey my voice, and if you will keep this covenant. By the way, the covenant hasn't necessarily even been established yet, right? But, but there's this idea of like everything that's about to happen, if you will keep this, if you will do this, what does God want to do? It's, it's not just for them to be saved. It's you will be my treasured possession. So first, if, if they do this, they are special and treasured to God. It's a wonderful thing to be considered treasured by the one true God. And for these people, they would really appreciate this because what did they just see? They saw God's power in wiping out the Egyptians as they walked through the Red Sea. They saw God's power as they were able, to, through all the plagues, to, to witness the, the might of God. 
But he also says that among all the people that Israel will be a kingdom of priests. So I want to ask this question. I just want to give you a chance to think about it and just answer within your own head. What does he mean when he says that they will be a kingdom of priests? Does he only mean that among their nation will be the priesthood, like the the Levitical priesthood or just this priesthood through Aaron? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is that this whole nation will be priests and it will be priests towards those that are outside of this nation. So basically Israel will be the path and will be the way that those outside of Israel, those that are not God's people will come to God. Because when you look and you see the purpose of consecrating priests in Leviticus and you look and see the work of priests, the whole point was this is so that there is an avenue, this, this, so there's a, basically a mediator right between people that have sin and God. And this is so that their sin can be made right, so their sin can be atoned for. And I think what God is saying is, I want you to be that, Israel. I want you to be that for the whole world, that the whole world can come to God through you because you can teach them, because you can help them to make their sin right, because you can help them be atoned for. And that's just a really cool idea that God had a plan that his whole nation, all these people, would be his representatives among the world so that people, when they desire to come to God, they can just come to Israel. And that these people, these people of God, these holy nation, this treasure possession, can tell them, well, this is what you need to do. This is exactly how you can be made right before God. And I, I also think it's interesting if you back up just a little bit. What, what have the people of Israel just gone through? Well, they just kind of went through their own washing, didn't they? Now, they actually didn't get wet at all with their washing. But they were surrounded by water. Like, I mean, they, they were surrounded by water as they walked. They didn't really walk on, on the Red Sea, right, because there was no water there. They walked on dry ground. That's where the Red Sea was, though. And God, and God parted the water, and they walked through. And then actually, we, and we'll read this uh, in a little bit, we see that very clearly that there is this, there's this idea of baptism in the New Testament that water saves and everything like that. But, but I think that what I just want to focus on with this, with what we read in Exodus and Leviticus, is that there was a washing that prepared God's people for the work that he wanted them to do. And there was a purpose that he had behind the work he wanted them to do, which is that this is for the good of themselves, but this is good for, for all other people. But what they needed to do is, he says in Exodus 19, is they need to obey his voice and keep his laws. So among all that God has, which is the whole earth, he has set up a people to be his special treasure. And God wants to draw all people to himself through his priest and give them the words to say. Maybe generally the words to say, but maybe not specific words, but sometimes very specific words. But they have a message from God and they're supposed to be teaching this to people. They're supposed to be sharing this to people. So people can come to God. All right, now let's go back to Leviticus. Leviticus, now let's go to chapter 10. So the first thing I just wanted to establish was that God had expectations for the priest and he had certain things he wanted them to do. He wanted them to be anointed. He wanted them to be washed. He wants them to put on these garments. He wants them to be set apart and, and consecrated. But go to Leviticus chapter 10 and let's read verses 6 through 11. 
The Mo then Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word, to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute for, forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statute that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. God has use for his priests here. But this is actually a, a really odd situation where Nadab and Abihu have just been had just been killed. They've just been struck down. It says that they offered fire that was not pleasing to God. It's, I mean, sometimes we say it's unauthorized fire or strange fire in the first three verses. And it says that the fire came up before the Lord and consumed them. And that God says, or excuse me, Moses said to Aaron in verse 3 of chapter 10, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So Aaron holds his peace, and then Moses basically says, hey, don't mourn what just happened. These, these are two of his sons. Like Nadab and Abihu are two of the sons of Aaron. And here's Moses saying, this isn't a time to hang your head low. This is not a time to mourn. What a strange thing to say to a man that just lost two of his sons. Why would he say that? Why, why can't Aaron just have a moment here and just... Be sad and, and, to, and to show that outwardly. Well, I think that the reason is because he still has use. God still has use for Aaron in this very moment. It's not time for it. He says that they're still in the tent of meeting. And so they don't need to be doing this. Now, what, what would happen if Aaron did bewail and didn't mourn right now? I think it would be a bad example to the people of Israel. There is a good time to mourn, but it's not right now. And if they did mourn, I think that the people would be, be left with a bad example of how to respond to God's judgment over sin. God just judged Nadab and Abihu because of their sin. Now, what happens if Aaron sits there and, and abandons his, his duties as a priest, or, or at least removes himself from the place that God wants him to be, and just starts kind of doing what any other father would probably do? I think it'd be a bad example to all the other people. And also, he would not be fully consecrated. He would not have gone through this time of anointing. I, I really think that another thing that we're supposed to see is what Moses says in verse 3. That the reason that God has done this is because with what Nadab and Abihu did, it would lead to God not being sanctified himself. Like, they would not set God apart as holy and special if they continued with the path of Nadab and Abihu. So that's why he consumed them with a fire. But also, if he let Nadab and Abihu just kind of get away with this, and it also, I believe, if he let Aaron and others to, I guess, mourn and bewail this, as the, as the ESV says, it says, before all the people, I will be glorified. God would not be glorified among all other people if he did not correct this. And it's just a very strange situation and timing. But I want to go to 1 Samuel, and I want to see another situation that is similar in that there is a judgment based on how the priest acted or, or how they, they did not act the way they needed to. And in 1 Samuel 2, this might be familiar to you where you have Eli and his sons. 
So in 1 Samuel 2, let's look at beginning of verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What, what a terrible thing to be said about, you know, like they're worthless people. But why were they worth, worthless? They did, not know to, they did not know the Lord. So this isn't just worthless like, oh, you good for nothing. Like, you know, I've never had anybody say that to me, but I've heard people say that. And I just think that is like awful. Why were they worthless? Because they were supposed to be useful to God, but they were not useful to him. The custom of the priest, verse 13, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So this actually would go back to what we didn't actually read in Leviticus 8, or at least part of this would. The fat was to be for God. The fat was the most special part. Now, if, I, if you give me a steak and it's got a bunch of fat on it, I do not want that. Uh, I understand there's more flavor and all that stuff. To me, the texture is unbearable. I cannot handle it. But God has already said that there are certain things that are devoted to him. And then the priests kind of get what's not left over, but kind of like what's left over. But what's happening here is there's a custom of the priests that have been started. I think this is something like 400 years after what we have already read in, in Exodus and Leviticus. So here comes the priest, and this is their custom. This is not the commandment of God. This is something they establish themselves. They go and they say, oh, you just go get a fork. And I, I imagine it was a pretty big fork and not just like a small thing. Just get a little bit of meat, probably a, a huge fork. And they get, the, they thrust it into the, the pan, the, the pot or whatever it is. And they, they get the meat and whatever comes up, oh, that's for the priest now. There, that, was, that was not anywhere in the actual original law. That was not anything that they were to be doing. And if there was fat there, well, hey, so be it. But also, did you notice that it actually says that he, they wanted it to be raw? They do not want it once it's boiled. They want it raw. Why is that? Um, boiled meat is not that tasty. And if you can prepare it yourself the way you want it, you might be able to get it tasting pretty good. And I think this is what the priests wanted. They wanted the good stuff. And they wanted it for themselves. And they wanted how they wanted it. Because they just wanted to enjoy it. And what, is, what does it actually say that they have done to this offering and to the sacrifice. They've treated it with contempt, it says. So when we take the things that God wants uh, us to have, and, he, and when we kind of distort that, and we actually take the things that is meant for God, not only have we done something that is just wrong, we have treated the thing that was supposed to be offered to God with contempt. We've diminished, and we have brought down and brought low God to ourselves but also maybe to others. So what, what happened earlier where we read what happened with, uh, with Nadab and Abihu, where God says, I will be sanctified among my people and I will be glorified among all people. What have they done to God here? They have not sanctified God. So among his own people, he's not being consecrated and set apart. But among all people, if they know about this or this is an example and a pattern that they see, 
God is not being glorified. Now let's skip down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So then we skip down a little bit more. Let's go to verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Holiness was meant to bring glory to God and not to themselves. But they use an opportunity of holiness to glorify themselves. So God judged them for that. God will only allow priests that are faithful to him. He's not going to have it where people can serve him however they want. He's not going to have priests on behalf of people that can just live however they want to live and be selfish and greedy and, and sleep with people just because, well, they can. Or, you know, take from people and say, I know this is offered to the Lord, but actually, don't you think that God wants me to have this? You know, I mean, just trust me, right? These are people that are supposed to be a bridge between their sin and God, and they have taken all of their responsibility and they just cast it aside. That's what they've done. And what are the people supposed to do if, if they're sit, sitting there and the priest, the holy priest that God has consecrated is telling them all of this? They're going to do it. So here they are taking advantage of their, of their own people that they're supposed to be serving. And God's not going to have it. And God says he's only going to allow people that are faithful. He's going to raise up a faithful priest. And he says, and one day your people are going to go back to him and, he's going to, and they're going to say, just let us have a morsel of bread, please. Just give us something. Well, what does this have to do with us? <laughs> All right. So I want to go to 1 Peter. And we just finished doing 1st and 2nd Peter in our Wednesday study. And one of the things that I was left with the impression of is that Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are among non-believers because they've been exiled because of persecution. And one of the things he emphasizes is not only, hey, take heart because I know this is hard, but you know what, there's still hope. But he actually makes a specific emphasis of, of talking about priesthood and holiness. And why would he do that? And that's what I want to look at for the rest of our time. I want to look at the fact that there's a purpose behind our holiness. So let's look, read in 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's just read verses 4 and 5 and then 9 and 10. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, he's talking about Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he says this to all Christians, all people that are believers. He says, you are living stones. You are a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. Then he says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation of people for his own possession. That's exactly the way God spoke of Israel back in Exodus 19. And it's similar to how God speaks of his priests that would be set apart and consecrated in Leviticus. They are to be holy. They are to be set apart. But why? Well, if you notice what he says in verse 9, it is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who, who would they be proclaiming this to? To each other? I mean, maybe some. I mean, I guess that would be true. You're going to go around talking about how much you love God with those that also love God. And like, God's done great things for me. But I think it's among the people that they're around. I think it's because they're exiled and they're, they're out there in the world and they're living around a bunch of people that are, that are sinners, a bunch of people that are pagans, a bunch of people that are Gentiles and everything like that. And it's like, no, you proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of your former state, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You proclaim that to the people that are still in darkness. And that's what he expects of us today. We're supposed to be a royal priesthood, just like Israel where God wants to call the whole world to himself. And he's going to use us. He's going to use us as this bridge between him and them to help them with their sin. But you know, if we're going to help them with their sin, we got to get rid of our sin first. So that's why we have to be holy. So he actually emphasizes that also in, in chapter 3. If you look at chapter 3 and you look down to verse 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So when does this start with us? When does God begin to set us apart and set us aside for this specific work of being his priest? Well, what saves us? Well, it's baptism that saves us, he says. Now, it's not the removal of dirt, but so what is it actually removing? The filth of our sin. That's what Acts 2.38 very clearly says. But also, we, we understand that he wants us to be a holy people, a people that actually live a certain way. So let, let's actually go back in 1 Peter to chapter 1 and verse 13 through 17. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. God wants priests with his mind and his heart. That's what 1 Samuel actually said, that, that we didn't focus on it, but it was this interesting part in 1 Samuel where he says, he wants a people with his mind and his heart. And what does Peter say here? He wants, we, that we need to prepare our minds for action. Well, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be living holy lives. Well, why? Hey, well, because... God's holy, we must be holy. 
And that alone is worth it, and that alone is, is a reason enough. But he also says in verse 17 that we need to conduct ourselves with fear, that we need to kind of keep our deeds and our lives in check during the time of our exile, during the time that we're still around those in darkness, during the time where we're out here in the world, not living like the world, though. He wants us to live a certain way to exemplify holiness. Why would, why would that be the expectation? So I think there's two main reasons. And it's the same two things that God was concerned about with Nadab and Abihu. Because God wants to be sanctified among his people. So if we don't live holy lives, we are not sanctifying God. We're not setting him apart as holy when we take our lives in our own hands and just worship him how we want, live how we want, do whatever it is we think is, is right and natural for us. Like, we're not sanctifying God in our lives. But among all the other people, among the whole world, God will not be glorified when his people do not sanctify him. God cannot be glorified when we do not profess holiness and exemplify holiness before them. Because how else can they be brought to God? God has always wanted to use his people. He's always wanted to use his priest. You know, there are other places that give us a lot of lists of sins and things that displease God. And I just want to give you a few of those lists without turning to them. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 3, and Colossians 3. They just go through a a laundry list of sins and activities and ways of life that God does not approve of. We should know what those scriptures say, and we should realize that God has been pretty specific about the things that, that are not pleasing to him. But I don't think that we should take that list and just think, well, that's all there is. Like, God just wants us to live this way because that's just what he expects. And again, I want to emphasize, like, that alone is enough. If, if I believe in the God that's created all things, then whatever he has said, like, do or don't do, it, that's enough for me to do it or not to do it. But he does have a greater purpose behind this. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, we didn't read these verses, but look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, war against, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I, I usually thought that what that meant was um, <laughs> live a certain way among those that are not Christians so that that way one day when Jesus comes back, they'll at least be like, wow, you were right. And here I am burning. I don't think that's what he's saying here. <laughs> Maybe that is, but I, I actually don't think that's what he's saying anymore. And the reason I think that is because this is so similar to what we read in the Old Testament about the priests and their purpose and what God wanted to accomplish through his people. It's that we live certain lives so that when people see how we live, even if they mock us at first, even if they think it's strange or whatever it might be, even if they think that we are doing evil things at some point, they might see our good deeds, like through, the, through time, they see our good deeds and what do they do? They glorify God on the day of visitation. And we talked about what the day of visitation might be in our Wednesday night study, and we didn't come to one conclusion. I think we had two options. And the option that I'm leaning towards right now is that the day of visitation is when, uh, when the Lord comes to that house or whatever, or when they are in the state of being um, confronted with the truth of the gospel. 
But if it is the day of visitation when Christ comes back, then I suppose that they will still be speaking good of us because they witness our good deeds. Now let's go over to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. And I just want to read verse 3 and 4. So how should we be living? Well, the time that, uh, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. I think there's an element of bringing others to holiness that God has in mind. There's more depth to why we abstain from things. There's greater purpose than just being pleasing to God, just like the Old Testament priests, just like those people we read in Leviticus and 1 Samuel and Exodus. God has a reason behind why he wants you to live the way you should live. There's two more places I want to go to, and then that'll be it. And I realize that I've gone a lot longer than I thought I would. I actually cut a lot out of this lesson, so uh, that, that doesn't say anything good about my preparation, I guess. <laughs> Uh, 2 Peter 3. <laughs> 2 Peter 3, and we'll read verses 8 through 13. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, real quick, before we move on and, and see like how we are to live, this isn't just patience towards you. He's saying that the Lord is patient towards all, right? So he's not willing that any should perish, but should all, that all should reach repentance. So we need to regard God this way, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of all people. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We are to live holy and godly lives, not only because we don't know when Jesus is coming back and we don't want to, him to catch us when we're in sin, but because God wants all people to come to repentance. And he will use you for that. But not if you're not living a holy and godly life. And the last passage is back in 1 Thessalonians where we started. 1 Thessalonians, and I want to read the verses that we didn't read, picking up in verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So here are just a few things, just to be very specific, to be very explicit with, with what we need to be careful with. So in general, we need to live holy lives. We need to set ourselves apart. God wants to set us apart for his service so we can not only be pleasing to him, so we do not die, like it says in, in Leviticus, but also so that other people can be made right before God. Maybe that's people that are Christians that need to repent. Maybe that's people that are in darkness that need to come to the light and come to Christ. Whatever it is, that's how God wants to use his people. 
So what does that mean? Well, here's just a few things that we read from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sexual immorality needs to be put away from us. Like promiscuous nature and living lives of promiscuousness needs to stop among his people. We can't do that. We cannot sleep around with who we want to sleep around with. We cannot just gratify ourselves. And the reason is not just because God will judge us for it, but because God wants to actually use us to bring people to him. And if we are selfish enough just to think that I can do whatever I want, it's a natural desire and it's something that everybody else does, then we have no, we have no use for God. I mean, excuse me, God has no use for us. And we are not sanctifying God in our lives. We need to be self-controlled in all ways that we use our body. That means that we don't go out and we don't, we're not, we're not drunkards. I mean, he even says with Aaron and with, um, with uh, the other two sons that I can't think of right now. Uh, what? Yes, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, that they are to, uh, to not even drink. That, that's what he says there. We read in a couple passages already that drunkenness and drinking parties, like that, that needs to be put away from us. Well, Why? We're to be people that are self-controlled. We're to be people that are able to teach people. That's why he said that back in Leviticus. Leviticus 10, he says, don't do this because you know what? You're supposed to teach the people the way of the Lord. And if we're going to be people that are out there and just enjoying all that life offers, whether it be through drugs or alcohol or through just getting fat because we eat everything we want, which by the way, that's for me. Like, I, I know that I have a problem with some of those things. Like, we have to be real with that. And when people look at us, they need to be able to see we are self-controlled people that we can actually teach them the ways of the Lord. And then they're not going to sit there and be like, you can't tell me anything. Look at you. I know what you were doing last night. Look at you. You can't even think straight. Look at you. You have to have sunglasses indoors because you can't stand the light. Look at you. Like, you're not even thinking. You're sounding crazy right now. Look at you. You can't put down a cookie. I don't know what it is for, for you, but... God wants to use us to teach people. So we have to live lives that are self-controlled. We can't covet and want what we want. That's exactly what the, the sons of Eli did. They wanted what they wanted. They took advantage of other people. We're to be people that are forgiving, that don't take advantage of people. But rather we love our brothers and sisters. We love all people. And that we will be taken advantage of for their sake. We need to speak true things for the sake of unbelievers, even when it's hard. So that means we need to be an honest people. So if I'm just going to go through like a few things and just list them out just for us to wrap up. We really have to put away sexual morality. We have to put away drunkenness and just any sort of thing that is living a life out of control. We need to have sober living is basically the point. We do not, we cannot be covetous and greedy and we must be honest. We cannot be a people that lie and are dishonest. And I know there are many other things that we could go through, but to me, those four things seem to match up pretty well with what we read in Leviticus, 1 Samuel, and in 1 and 2 Peter. So just to wrap up, uh, and I do apologize for going a little longer, um, we need to cleanse ourselves. We need to make sure we are sanctified before the Lord, that God uh, has cleansed us of our sin. We need to make sure we are setting ourselves apart in holiness. But the reason isn't just so that we will be saved and so that God will be pleased with us. The reason is because God wants to use you. He wants to use you in his service to reach people. So if you've been sitting there and wondering why you can't, like why, you know, so-and-so hasn't been converted or why, 
you know, you've had a lot of conversations with so-and-so and you just don't know why they haven't, they haven't changed or they haven't, you know, turned away from whatever it is. Well, maybe the first place to look is how are you conducting yourself before them? How are you living? Um, we cannot be this bridge to, from people and their sin to God if we ourselves are not living like this royal and holy priesthood. So it's my prayer that God will use us. And if you need to make something right, then do that. And if you need to change something in your life, we'll do that. But don't just do it for yourself. I mean, you need to do it for yourself. But also do it for a greater purpose. So you can bring others to the Lord. So we're going to have another, we're going to have a song, one last song before we wrap up that Josh has prepared. And if you do need prayers or you need help, let someone here know. Talk to us afterwards after we have the announcement, announcements in the prayer in a second. Thank you.